Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. I locked myself in my room and just got to work. And I found out, like most people know, that inspiration comes after you get to work. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where we work to answer the question, how do you get better at painting? I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. And this week, I'm talking with the voice you just heard, Brienne M. Brown. In the conversation, you'll discover the pigment strategy Brown uses to make sure all of her work has color harmony, how to use opaques even if you are primarily a transparent painter, and why sometimes the goal needs to be an almost finished painting, plus a whole lot more. If you're part of the podcast art club on Patreon at Gloss and High Gloss, go check out your bonus conversation. Brown talks composition and why you absolutely do not need to be faithful to your reference photo. Plus, check out an additional 13 bonus conversations with guests on the show. If you'd like to learn more about how to join the podcast art club on Patreon at Matt Gloss or High Gloss, head to learntopaintpodcast.com support and look for the Patreon link. Speaking of links, Brown mentions a few videos in the conversation, and I'll link to those at the show notes, learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 46. All right, here we go. Hi, Brienne. Welcome to the podcast. How did you get started in art? Hi, Kelly. Yeah, it's great to be here. I started in art when I was very little. So I was drawing and coloring, of course, when I was little, but I also started taking private lessons at 11. And it just continued on through school, through college, and always loved art. But I never was planning to be an artist as a career. I wanted to be a doctor, and I wanted to go into science, and I loved math as well. I actually graduated in chemistry. I declared a double major art and chemistry, but never planned on finishing art. So I just did it because I loved it. But then in graduate school in chemistry was the first time in my life I didn't have any art. I mean, I just had no time. And so I had just taken it for granted throughout my life thus far. So I realized I needed it. And I took a community class two hours a week. That's all the time I had to paint. And it was watercolor. And that was my first experience to watercolor, but I've loved it. And so, yeah, after graduating, I continued to make art a priority because I knew I had to. What did making it a priority look like in your life? Well, it was difficult because at first, right after graduating, I got a job in a toxicology lab analyzing different samples for narcotics, actually. It was really fun. But I kept making sure I was painting every, not every day, I couldn't quite do that, but a couple times a week. And then I would take workshops when I found out what they were. I had no idea up until then. Uh, I also took community classes. I mean, I just continued to learn. But then also when I had my first son, who's now 13, I quit my job. And so I started putting more and more time into painting. When it got to the point they stopped napping, which... (laughs) 
is always a problem as a young mom because, of course, you don't have the time to always be on your own. So I hired a young lady in our neighborhood to come two days a week for four hours. And that was enough time to be able to at least keep up with it. And you know what? That was actually a super valuable lesson for me because I only had that four hours. So even if I was exhausted and didn't want to paint, I locked myself in my room and just got to work. And I found out, like most people know, that inspiration comes after you get to work. And once I started to work, it all comes back and I was having fun. So many of us wait to have the time but it sounds like you made the time. So how important is that, do you think, to make the time? In my experience, I think it is important. Now, we also have to be realistic, of course, right? We have to look at our life and what are our priorities, and we're going to spend time on our priorities. And it's totally fine to wait until after you have kids. I'm not saying it's not. But to think that, oh, I'll have more time later, or I'll always have more time later, What I find when talking with people, even after retirement, a lot of people still have stuff that comes up. You still have life that happens. Parents that need caring or other kids that come back home. I mean, life is always going to get in the way. And so it does take making that time. And for me, I just had learned that lesson that I wasn't happy unless I was doing something creative. I knew for my own health, mental health, however you want to say it, spiritual health, I needed to keep painting. But what I found is useful for me, and of course, every person has to find what works for them, but I would sit down once a week, and usually it was on a Sunday, and I would plan out my week, and I would put the most important things down, of course, but I would also schedule in my painting time. That was another thing that I learned from having a sitter because that was my painting time. Like I didn't have any other option. And so it really helps even now I do better when I schedule it and I keep it. And so if someone asks me, oh, are you free to do something, something, you know, I just say, no, I'm working. And I would say even for those that aren't professional artists, it's important to treat your painting time as work because that's what it is. And if you tell them, oh, I'm painting, they'll think, oh, well, you're not busy. It's like, no, I am, actually. It's like, we have to learn, but also our families have to learn. The people who love us have to learn. And it seems like it's a thing we learn together. And it's not always easy to learn that together, but like both parties have to learn that. I think that's true. I think if it is important to us to really improve, I mean, we really do need to be consistent. And that's not once every couple of weeks or once a month. And so if we really want to improve, we've got to put that time in and we have to let our loved ones know how important it is. Even if it's a hobby, that doesn't mean it's not important, you know, that it's important for us and our happiness. So yeah, and they'll understand that if we can put it that way. Well then, moving into materials, you're a watercolorist. What pigments do you use and what do you want from them. Like there are a bunch of different pigment options for watercolors, but what do you use and why? I use a combination of basically two sets of red, yellows, and blues as my base set of colors. And they're transparent. So they're what I like to call my stock colors. So they happen to be transparent yellow oxide, quinacridone rose, cobalt blue are my favorites. They're like my bulk red, yellow, and blue. 
Then I have deeper ones that I use to make darks and to make them deeper, you know, and that kind of stuff that still mix well. And that's ultramarine blue, transparent red oxide, and alizarin crimson. Then I have other colors that I still add in that are kind of what you'd call shortcuts or fun colors, but they all mix well with my base, my like stock set of colors. And so that's how I think about it. And all those stock colors are transparent so that they mix easily. But then I also have opaques colors, which I add, but then I add them at certain times and for certain effects that I want to get. When you say mix well, what do you mean? Do you mean color? Do you mean the physicality of the paint? Could you talk more about what that means? Yes, I mean both. It's interesting because in working with oil, let me just share the difference a little in the fact that with oil paint, you have the same pigments, okay, that you do with watercolor, but because of the binders and how they're made, you put it on thickly, usually, the pigment itself doesn't actually matter as much. It's really, you're just mixing the colors. But when you go to watercolor, where we work very thin and transparently, then the pigment itself does make a difference. Some pigments are very small and are more like a dye. And so they will overtake another pigment really easily, where some are bigger and they're weaker. And so they don't, they kind of recede from the more aggressive pigments, I guess you could call them. So there is definitely something to the physical nature of the pigments that we have to deal with. Now, do we have to study all that? No. I'm a geek, so I love to study all that. But really, it comes down to the colors I chose. And what I mean by they play well together, they mix well together, is that, yeah, they're kind of equally powerful, but also that I love the mixes I get when I mix them. Because I mix a lot on the palette. And some people think, you know, ask me, how do you not get mud, right? Because I'm mixing so much, but I mix a lot of neutrals, a lot of grays. I love to do that with the combination of red, yellows, and blues, but I lean them, cool it down, warm it up. I'm constantly changing that mixture, but I know no matter how I'm going to mix those together, I like what comes out. So also, if someone is painting, like they might see that their like pigments separate or something is physically happening. That just might mean that if they chose a different yellow or a different red or something different, it would work, but that's like a pigment issue. Yes. And that's why I really suggest to my students that you want to play, spend time playing with pigments that you have. And there is no, and I I like to say this, there's no magic palette out there, which is good and bad news. It's bad news because it would be really nice to be, oh, if you always use these, this will always work. Because, right, you go to so many different workshop instructors, right? And this instructor uses these sets of pigments and this instructor uses these, but they both paint beautifully. Well, the good news is it really doesn't matter, but what does matter is that you learn how to use the pigments that are in your palette. Now, like you say, as we experiment and as we play with them, there's one that's just dominating or separating, or it's just, well, then that's just one you're going to well, maybe I need to switch it, like you say, with another yellow. So it's not just the color itself, but it's also the property of the pigment that can make a difference. But, and the only way to do that is experimentation, which is fun. So learn to play with your paints again. You mentioned that you use opaques for certain effects. Could you talk about that briefly, how you use opaques to get certain effects? I have a number of opaques in my palette. Three of my favorite, okay, are lavender, which is from Holbein. Horizon Blue, which is from Holbein, and then Cobalt Teal Blue, which is from Daniel Smith. Now, they're all fairly opaque. For example, 
I use the horizon blue and the cobalt teal as kind of last minute. If you've seen my work, you'll see spots of bright, brilliant blue or turquoise. That's what I use those two colors for. And that's just kind of a, a thing. The sergeant used to do some of this where if you have a painting with a lot of neutrals, when you put in spots of bright color here and there, it makes the neutrals sing and it works. <laughs> so that's what I use those for. But the lavender. Okay, it's an opaque paint, but I use that for every painting. You just don't see it because I use it as a neutralizer. Even though it's opaque and you say, oh, you shouldn't do washes with opaques. You shouldn't do it in the early stages. Actually, I love using it to push things in the background. Living here in Pennsylvania, there's a lot of atmosphere that's just like, I mean, from Utah, it was magic. It was magical because in Utah, everything's clear. You can see from forever. And I mean, there is some atmosphere there, but it's not like in Pennsylvania where it's like you can eat it, right? But what I find is you get this milky feel. And so I kind of use those opaques for those distant areas or things that get pushed back in the distance because I want that milky feel in certain areas. So I will use it if I'm going to do a back mountain or some background trees. I will take the lavender and mix it in with my green so that I get this milky kind of aspect to it. And that just helps with the atmospheric effect. So, but you do have to be careful. You don't want to put it in everything because you want some transparency for sure. But in certain areas, it helps with that misty, distant view. Well, then that sort of brings us to paper. What paper do you use and why? I use Saunders Waterford mostly right now, and it's a cold press or they're rough. Though I'll also use Arches rough sometimes, but Saunders Waterford is my favorite at this time. I also love their 200 pound. There's only a few companies that have that weight, and I just really like it. It acts like 200 pound, but yet it doesn't buckle as much, but it's not as 300. So, how does the paint and the paper interact, and what do you like about it? Because I know that all papers sort of interact with paint differently. What do you like about the Saunders paper? Paper does make a difference. And Saunders is very, the cold press is very forgiving in a way. I mean, it doesn't suck up the paint so much that the color's gone, but it also sucks it up a little bit. So it's not like hot press where it like kind of stays on top. It's really kind of a workhorse. I mean, you can lift. It's pretty tough paper. Arches is very similar. They're close. So I really like either one. But I think I've just gravitated towards the Saunders because of the 200 pound. But you want to test different papers and find out what they do because they will look different. Like Fabriano, you know, it's a great paper. I have nothing against it. But every time I paint it, I'm just, with the way I work, I'm just not happy with it. But yeah, I have friends that that's all they use and they love it. So that's why there's no one thing out there. You really got to try it out for yourself and buy, buy little scraps of it and find out what it does. We did a tech call and you mentioned that you make a watercolor board for your plein air painting. But I was wondering if you could just talk about how you make your watercolor boards. That is another reason why I started with the 200 pound. So I use 200 pound Saunders Waterford cold press to make the boards and I adhere the paper to a gator board. So it's about 3 16th inch gator board and it doesn't warp no matter how much water you throw at it. And I adhere it with acrylic medium. I use the heavy gel, so it's like spreading peanut butter. It's like spreading peanut butter on the board itself. Then I just have the paper that's cut slightly bigger than the board size. Roll it on. It sit overnight with something heavy on it. And then it just 
hardens and dries and then I cut the edges so it has a clean edge and I just paint right on that. And it's awesome because, yeah, no buckling at all. And you actually show how to do this in one of your videos, right? Yes, you can find it on my YouTube channel or on my travelingcolorstudio.com. And we'll link to that in the show notes. Yeah, that's great. Okay, well then, could you walk us through your process? Yes, I do two major things. So I love to plein air paint, as you mentioned, and it's one of my favorite things. But of course, I can't do that 100% of the time. So I also work in my studio. My process is similar, but slightly different. When I go on site to paint on location, I have my backpack with all my gear in it. And I'll usually set it down and I walk around for a while. You know, and this is an important step. So many times if students go start plein air painting, they're so excited to just start painting that they just like pick something quick. You know, I got to get going. Where no, take some time, walk around. I'm really looking for what is going to make a good subject. Then I get my sketchbook out and do some value studies. And I do value studies before every painting, whether I'm in the studio or out. And I'm looking to make sure that I'm going to have a good painting. So I want to find that out first. So they're little. I keep them no bigger than three by four inches, sometimes smaller. Once I've figured out a good spot, then I set up, draw it on my board. And I start with a first wash, which is just really light, lots of water, a little bit of pigment. And just to really get rid of a lot of the white, I kind of like toning my canvas in a way because it's so hard to relate values to white. And so I like to get rid of a lot of the white. And while it's drying, I'm always looking for inspiration. A cool guy walks by with a cool hat or, I don't know, a cow is standing there. I might quickly sketch them in my sketchbook, you know, to add them later. And then I put in my middle values and my dark values. And just kind of build it from light to dark. And so that's what I do when I'm on site. Though I don't always finish the painting. A lot of times I will, but I'll at least try to get it to 80 to 90% done. However, even if you just get started, it's useful. But that for another time. So in my studio, do kind of a similar thing, but yet I don't always have the time to just sit and paint, right? We're busy with lots of things. I'm busy with kids. So I have my sketchbook with me and I'll load up photos that I might be interested in on like my phone or I can search through on my computer or something. And while my kids are watching some little thing that I'm not really interested in, then I can do sketches. I can do value studies and I can plan various paintings. That way, when I go to my studio, I'm ready to start. And so I use always start with a value study, but I usually don't work on the boards in the studio, but I draw it out and do a first wash middle value and then dark. It just, I have more time to think about it, more time to let things dry. Yeah, that's the difference. But it's basically the similar process. How accurate or how much drawing do you actually do on the board or paper? It depends on the subject. If there's a lot more just natural trees and streams and that kind of stuff, I just try to get the angles of like a stream or something is important or angle of a road. So I don't have to do that much accurate drawing of a tree because most of that's going to be done with the brush. But for architectural subjects where I'm doing a street scene or a house or something, I will spend a little more time to make sure I get the angles and position right and stuff like that. So it does depend on the subject on how much drawing I do. Listening to you talk and thinking about our tech call, I'm so struck by 
how much thinking there is in your process? Like how much are you just thinking about art during the day or looking for places where you can put a little bit of art thinking time, either like in practice or just the thinking of it? If you ask my husband, too much time. But in all honesty, I do think a lot about paintings and I dream paintings. It can be a little overwhelming sometimes, but I do a lot of planning. And sometimes that might seem like, oh, well, then you're not being spontaneous and creative and you're putting so much time into thoughts. But yes and no, because that's one reason I love watercolor. There's spontaneity enough in watercolor. I just love that. But I'm also really big on thoughtful designs and composing a painting that not only has the meaning of the place that I'm at and gives the impression of the place I'm at, but also visually is engaging. It's like being an abstract artist. People understand that if you're an abstract artist, you've really got to think of composition because that's what you've got. And how you're putting things together is really important. But as a representational painter, it's just as important to think about your composition and your design. And it may not always take total precedence over wanting something to get that feeling to look representational, but it is a huge piece for me. They're still just abstract elements that are put together on a 2D surface. So I want to make sure that design-wise, it's engaging as well as a scene that has a story or means something. So that's where a lot of the thought goes into, and that pre-planning is the compositional elements. Well, also what I hear you saying is that that stuff is not obvious immediately. You have to spend some time thinking about it to come to those realizations about something that's literally sitting right in front of you, but you still have to spend the time thinking about it. Yes, that's very well put. It isn't always obvious. I mean, sometimes I will come and like a scene is there and it's like, whoa, all right, maybe I could have just taken a photo, right? Not really, of course. But yeah, I don't have to put as much time, but sometimes, yeah, and it's problem solving. And that's actually why I love painting. Some people are so surprised that I go from a science background and I love math to go to art, but I love puzzles, okay? And that's why I loved science and that's why I loved math because I loved solving puzzles. Well, that's what painting is. It's solving puzzles. And every time it's great because there's various solutions. There's not one solution. And that's what makes it so cool is that I could come up with a different solution for the same problem several different ways and I get different paintings. To me, that's part of the fun is the problem solving. And yeah, you're right. It's not just obvious all the time. So I have to kind of think, how can I make this composition? How can I make it better? How can I make it more engaging? Or I might be thinking, what's the feeling I want to get from this painting? Do I want it to be peaceful? Do I want it to be exciting? All of that comes into composing the painting. For you, because when you first lay down, you're working wet on dry, and then later you're working wet into wet. So could you just talk about, for someone who's newer to watercolor, what is the difference between those, just in how the paint is, and then why one over the other? Like, why do you work that first way in the beginning, and then why do you move to that second approach later? With the first wash, I do generally, like you say, start with a dry paper. Unless it's the climate's really dry, then I'll pre-wet maybe just the top part to make sure I have enough water. But that first one, I start at the top. I use enough water that I get a bead 
and I just continue it down so that I get a nice even wash. But I mix colors all over the place, you know, they just have fun with it. And I like to say you can't mess up that first wash. You really can't as long as you keep with light colors. If you just start totally dark, then yeah, okay, that's messed up. But in essence, that's what I like to do. So the light colors, the light value colors that will be for my painting. Now, after letting that dry and I do the middle values, I do like to do more. So I'll paint an area. Let's say it's not always a thing, but like an area with a bunch of trees and maybe there's part of the shadow of a house. I connect as many shapes as I can. Changing color as I go, but keeping the values, middle values, I'm connecting middle value shapes. And while it's still damp, I might also then drop in either other colors to add excitement or interest, but also maybe some darks with more pigment, less water. So I get a soft edge without losing it completely. And so the reason I like to do that is when you want a soft edge, then it's good to go wet into wet. And so I will do what I kind of call an area wash. It's basically an area shape. And I usually start towards the top, kind of move along that shape. And then while it's still damp, I can drop in different things. So there is some of that wet onto wet, but it's not over the whole paper. It's just in a specific area. The reason I like to work this way is one, I like to connect my shapes. You hear that a lot, but it's something that's just so beautiful in watercolor that's hard to get in other mediums. Well, you can still get it in other mediums, of course, but the watercolor, it does it itself. (laughs) It kind of just flows and you get these wonderful mixtures that you're like, wow, I could never do that on my own. So you kind of have to let it do it though. Does that mean the outside of that shape will innately be kind of hard? Yes. So sometimes then what I'll do is I'll clean off my brush get it damp. So I get out a lot of the water and I can still soften some of those edges here and there where I want it. Or the other thing I do as I continue to paint in that middle value stage is squirt the paper. So I do have a squirt bottle and I'm constantly not really hard, but just wafting like mist over it because that can also help soften the edges just slightly. Some edges, though, I want to keep hard. I kind of want a combination of both soft and hard edges. And so I make sure I kind of get that balance. When you use that clean brush to soften an edge, what is the water ratio in that clean brush? Basically how I like, you clean it out and I use a paper towel to get most of the water out. I don't soak it out, you know, because you can really soak out water to get it dry or fairly dry. I don't do that because you still need some water in it. And that is, honestly, that's the tricky part about watercolor, right, is understanding and getting comfortable with that water ratio to pigment ratio and how damp or dry the paper is and what it will do, because it definitely changes. And so that takes a lot of practice. (laughs) I just laughed because it's like you figure it out and then the paper (laughs) dries because that's how evaporation works. Yep. And it keeps doing it. You know, and that's why a lot of people will say that watercolor is the hardest medium. You know, there's a couple reasons, and that's definitely one of them. Yeah, so why is watercolor so hard? Another reason that watercolor is so hard is that so many people want to have that control. You know, when you come from a background of oil or acrylic or pastel, where you are directly putting something on and it stays there, all of a sudden, this medium, which one of the best parts about it is its unpredictability. But learning how to let go of some control and learning what the watercolor is going to do takes 
practice. I mean, all you need miles on a brush to get that. And that's what makes it difficult is that timing of the medium is so much different than timing of any other medium. You mentioned before about finding a subject. For you, what makes a good subject? How do you know that you have found a good subject? That is a great question. Because I get the comment a lot, wow, you paint everyday scenes and make them look beautiful. And what I like to say is that you don't want to confuse a beautiful scene with a good subject to paint because they're not always the same. They can be. But what it is that I really look for are interesting value shapes and value patterns. And that sounds so unromantic and, (laughs) you know, like what? But that's what really, again, it comes back to that thinking process of my composing a painting. It's really the shapes. Well, one big part of composition is value shapes and how they're arranged. And so those are the things I look for in making an interesting composition. But that having been said, I do want to mention something about finding good subjects, because we also know that we're going to paint a better painting if we care about the subject. But at the same time, just because we care about the subject doesn't automatically make it a good subject to paint. So there's a difference there, meaning that, okay, example, if you love waterfalls, you are just connected to them. Any waterfall you paint will not automatically make it a great painting. You still need to think about the shapes and the value patterns and all of that to make a great painting, but it could be a waterfall. So it's one of those things that when I go on location, I try not to think of a subject as a thing. So I'm not looking for things to paint. I'm looking for shapes to paint. And that's why I can end up painting garbage cans. <laughs> and so, yeah, maybe that's not the one that's going to you know, capture the heart of most people, but it could still make a good painting. So you want to be able to think of both. You want to be able to connect to your subject, but also realize that a good painting really comes down to the basic abstract design. And that's what I look for when I'm going on site or when I'm looking at my photos. You see a scene and you think like you trust, I think this has good abstracted shapes, but then you still test that theory in your studies. Yes, yes. And that's why my sketchbook, you can think of it as it's an artist's thought process, right? I mean, it's, they're not finished pieces. They're, hey, I'm going to try something out. And oh, that didn't quite work. Well, let me do another little sketch. What if I change the shapes a little bit to, oh, that looks better. That looks stronger. I mean, that's the kind of thing I do. And I might have an idea, but until I get it down on paper, I'm visual just like all artists are, right? And so it helps to see it. And so that's why I love to do studies because especially for watercolor, because we don't have that option to kind of give and take. You know, we can't put a shape down, take it away as easily as other mediums can. And so for us, we really want to at least start with a plan. Then I will say though, as I paint with watercolor, because of spontaneity of it, or the slightly controlled chaos that I like to call it, things happen. And I also make sure that I go with the flow. So even though I start with a tentative plan, it usually ends up being something kind of different, but similar. What choices do you want to have made before you pull out your pigments? The main things I look for are variation of shapes. So making sure my shapes aren't all the same size or exactly the same shape to where, okay, that looks a little too ordered. You know, I want to vary my spacing. 
I look at my negative spaces. How interesting are they? I want to make sure that there's a balance. Also, the flow through the painting. Is there a path for the eye in a way? Because again, they're small. I can make that more pronounced and stuff as I paint. But those are the basic ones. But then also, is there good rhythm? So really, I'm just looking at the basic value shapes of the painting first. Now, composition also entails, do you have a good balance and uh, harmony of color? So I sometimes will write color notes, but that I mostly solve on the painting part. So I don't solve that in the value study. I might have like a color dominance that I think of like, oh, this looks like a really overall warm scene would work. Or I want to kind of keep warm in the center of interest area and then cooler outside. I might think of things like that. It's specific colors, usually. As a beginning artist listening to this, I can imagine the question of like, wait, how does a basically a value study, which doesn't have color in it, like how does a value study tell you all of this? Yeah. So the value pattern, which that's just a pattern of light, middle and dark shapes, basically, because my value study, I usually have zero to five values. You know, I don't need the whole range of 10. In fact, three would work just fine. So how does it help me? Well, with watercolor, because I think in starting of light values, and then I think of the middle values, and then I think of the darks, it helps me because I know how the shapes relate to each other. So for instance, I know that one shape next to another shape, well, they're actually pretty close in value. So I could paint those together. I could change the color as I went, but their value is close enough that they could have a soft line. And so they could blend together where, oh, these two shapes are like high contrast. And so you've got a light shape next to a really dark shape. Well, I'm going to do that dry onto dry paper and make sure I get a hard line. So it helps me in those instances. And you might be thinking, wow, how are you thinking about all those different things at once? And the truth is, I'm not. I mean, I am. But as I have painted and as I have continued, some of these things become second nature to where I just I've done it enough that now a lot of those thoughts are done without even thinking. You know, I mean, it becomes more intuitive. It becomes more something that's kind of second nature. And that just comes really from practice. I focused on it early as I'm trying to learn this thing, but it's like it clicks. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah. And then as you use it, I don't even have to think about it anymore. It's kind of like, I mean, it's how we learn any skill. I play the piano, too. And so I love to use that analogy because when I first started, when you first start learning an instrument, it's very awkward. You know, you're kind of plunking it out. Your fingers don't always work the way you want them to work. But then as you keep doing it and your hands understand the motions, your brain gets it. And all of a sudden you can play it without thinking, without even looking at the music anymore. So it's very similar with painting. You got to get that hand-eye coordination going and you've got to know what color it needs without even thinking. And you can look at a paper and know how much water you need in the brush because you've done it enough. And I go through a rhythm without thinking of, okay, I dip my brush in the water, rinse it out, tap it to the paper towel, and I go into a color and then I mix the color. You know, I mean, I just, I have this rhythm to it to where it's just something you get used to. So yes, there's a lot to think about, but just bite off one thing at a time. You paint plain air. So what is plain air? Plain air, it's a French term meaning open air. 
And it just means painting on location. So painting from life is the main thing. Why does working from life matter? Especially in a day and age, we just have photos and they're so easy. Photos are so easy, but why does working from life matter? Yes. And photos are even better nowadays because we have devices, right? That give us light and it's not just a photo on a piece of paper. So they are so much better, but it's really important to learn from life. So I first started plein air in 2009 because I was taking a workshop I had heard about it, of course. The old masters, you know, the impressionists did it. You know, it's like, oh yeah, okay, whatever. But I had never thought of doing it myself until a workshop instructor came to me and he's like, Brianne, you know, you've got talent, but you've got to get out and paint. And I'm like, oh, you mean I just, that's all I have to do? I literally was like, oh, okay. I had no clue what I was doing, but I loved being outside. So it seemed like, okay. And of course I brought like, five or six different bags. I didn't know what I was doing. But what I have learned is that the reason it's so important is being able to observe light and shadow and what it actually does. Because even some of the best photos flattens everything out, averages a lot of the values so that, you know, a lot of the values and actual colors that you can see with your eye in person are not there in the photo. And we can discern so much with our eye because we focus on one thing at a time, right? We don't focus on everything like a photo does. So there's a lot we can learn by just being out there and observing. I like to think of plein air painting as information gathering. It's not about making a final painting. If you do a final painting, that's great. Bonus, that's awesome. But even if you want to just get out there and do some little studies, being out there and looking and seeing what a shadow looks like and how the light is bouncing through it, then there's so much that can be benefited from that. It's the same as if you were a portrait painter, you've got to learn to do portraits from life. If you're a still life painter, you want to do it from a real thing. Then you can do it from photos when you understand. And then it's easier to make those adjustments from a photo to bring that life into your painting. I have never been brave enough to try plein air painting, but I imagine it's a little bit overwhelming the first many times. So when someone is first starting, like they want to do plein air painting, what would be a beneficial way for them to sort of set expectations for the first little bit, maybe a while? Like, do you think people expect too much when they're first starting out plein air painting? Yes, I do think that. And I have to say that I was one of them. When I first started, because I had been painting for 15, 20 years already at that point as a studio painter. So you'd think I should be able to do this on site. No, there are a lot of other things that come into play with plein air. So yes, it is a skill that needs to be practiced and you're not going to be necessarily great at it to just start. In fact, my drawings were way off because it wasn't as easy taking a photo that's already flat. It's already composed. All you're doing is transfer it over. Now, all of a sudden, you're in three dimensions and your perspective can constantly change if you're not careful. Like if you sit down, all of a sudden your scene has changed. If you move slightly to the right, you know, I mean, if things change and all of a sudden your drawing can be totally off. So, yes, it does take practice in learning how to deal with that. Now, when you're first starting to set expectations, I'll tell you what I did because, yes, I was frustrated because I wasn't coming out with paintings that I wanted to necessarily show anybody. but What I did is I set a goal that I knew, okay, I wanted to improve at this because Roland Lee, he was my teacher at the time, he had said, this would make me better. So I believed him. And 
I set a goal for three months. So you need to set things that are reasonable for you and things that you can bite off. Don't say, oh, I'm going to paint for the rest of my life. That's too long. So for three months, I said, okay, I can handle two planar paintings a week. You know, I was still busy, but I had my mom to help me. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to set this goal. And I did it most weeks. Was I perfect? No. But then at the end, I had like 24 to 30 paintings. And the nice thing is at the end of that three-month period, I looked at the beginning one and I looked at the end one and I saw improvement. And that's what I would say was really helpful for me. Because from any one painting to the next painting, you're not going to see much difference. But you're going to see difference over a time if you're consistent with it. So then I set another three-month goal of what I'm going to do. You know, but having those little goals like that, I think, help a lot because we need to be able to see that improvement to stay inspired. It gets frustrating when, oh, another painting I want to throw in the bin. Yeah, it happens. But, you know, so I think that really helps. And as far as setting expectations, another thing that is helpful is making sure you treat them as studies. You know, you're going to go out and I'm going to paint a study. Don't think I'm going to paint a painting because then we have this pressure on ourselves, which is not necessary because you don't have to produce a painting. What you're doing is you're studying, you're learning, you're learning from Mother Nature, and that's what you need to do. I would say change your expectation in that way. Also, maybe sometimes set a time limit. Let's say I only have an hour and a half. I'm going to do an hour and a half and I'm not going to finish my painting. I'm only going to do half of it. And then I'm going to take it back to the studio where I'm away from everything that's changing anyways. I have my value study because you're going to do your value study too. And I have some photos. Take a photo of what you've seen. But then you were there. You were there for an hour and a half and you were looking at the same scene. You learned a lot. And so you can take it back to your studio and finish the painting and see if that doesn't help of just taking that pressure that you have to go outside and finish something to learn anything. That's not true. Not true. So often when we're getting started, we think we have to finish paintings. And maybe that's because before we're a painter, that's what we see. We see finished paintings. But everything about what you just said, you set a goal for showing up. You set a goal for a study. You set a goal for a process. None of those were finished paintings. And do you think that having the goal of a finished painting sort of slows us down in our learning process? I totally think it does. Yes. What you just said, I love how you succinctly said that because you're right. The goals should be of showing up maybe a time that you're going to be painting, studies that you're going to do, but not getting so many finished paintings. And I think it's true that when people are first learning, they see someone else like me, who I am a professional planar painter. That is what I do because I go to these events. I have to paint a finished painting, which I have to frame and actually try to sell and get an award maybe. So my goal is to get a finished painting, but I've been doing it for so long. I mean, that's what I do and that's what I love. But when I'm first starting out, that should not be our goal. And you don't have to end up being a plein air painter to have it be useful because not everyone loves being outside, you know, doesn't mind all different kinds of weather and bugs and all different kinds of fun stuff that you can get outside. And that's fine. I still think if you can, finding ways to learn from it and focusing, like you say, on the process as opposed to the final product will help your studio work. And that's the type of thing we want to bring back as an artist. 
And I always still hope that my plein air work has definitely helped my studio work. And that is our ultimate goal, I believe, because I still like working in the studio. We can be much more thoughtful. We have more time. Things aren't moving. People aren't talking to us in general, right? But to get to that point, we need to change what our goals actually are and not try to see what another artist says, oh, I want to do that. Well, wait, hold on. There's lots you need to learn before you get to that point, even if you want to get to that point. You mentioned when you first went out, like you brought all this stuff. Is it important to pare down what you bring? Yes, it is important to simplify and minimize your materials. Now, I can't really give you a perfect, you know, easel setup because it depends what you like. Some people like to sit while I paint. Some people like to stand. I like to stand, so I don't carry a chair with me. So I have an N Plain Air Pro, which is a easel that I love for the watercolor. But there's lots of great easels out there. So there's not like the best one. It's what makes you comfortable. So I would say if you're just starting out and you're not even sure if you like plain air, take a board, take a chair and put it on your lap. Don't worry about an easel yet. You know, you don't have to have the full setup, but you do still want to minimize. So what do I mean by that? Well, don't bring all your brushes and all your paint. Have like six brushes that you want to bring or six to 10 or brush holder. So find a brush holder, however many that holds. And then paints, don't bring everything, just fill up your little palette and that's probably enough. And, you know, have a small water container. You want paper towels and a squirt bottle. There's things like that that you'll need, but minimize and make, keep them as small as you can. That's reasonable. And again, what you're comfortable with. Now, what I would say that is a good suggestion is have a plein air bag. Or two. Okay, it can be two. My friend likes one on each arm. It balances her out. I like a backpack because I don't have a good back. And so I like to make sure that it's even on both sides. That's just me. But again, so that's not as important as just whatever it is, whatever your plain air bag is, have it packed and ready to go. Meaning, if you have some favorite brushes, buy two of them. One for your backpack and one for your studio. So you're not trying to pack up if you're going to go. Because you'll never do it. You want to keep it easy so that if the weather's nice and all of a sudden your schedule opens up or whatever, you can grab your backpack, remember to add water, and then you can go. And so it makes it so much easier. So that would be best practices is definitely have it ready. So if someone came to you and said, I want to get really good at painting, what advice do you give them? I would say do some drawing as well. I am big on drawing. I mean, one thing I've heard people say is if you want to get better at painting, get better at drawing. And there is a lot of truth in that. Now, I realize we all want to get to the painting because that's the fun part, right? But take some time, even if it's just those 10 minute sketches I talk about, that can help. So make sure you're doing some drawing. And then I would say if you really want to get into painting, take a number of different classes from different teachers because different teachers have different approaches. But I would say don't take any one person's approach as like gospel because it's useful to know. It's fun to learn different tidbits, but you don't want to be like, you know, every artist has their own set of rules in a way because that's what they've learned to do. And it's what they use in making their art how they want to make it. So you want to be careful about taking too many things as like a rule. And then you need to make the time to paint on your own. Okay. Besides taking 
workshops, which in classes, which are wonderful. You need to then give some time for yourself to play with it and be okay with making bad art or making paintings that you're not going to frame on your wall. You need to be okay with that. And again, shift your focus from, I need a good product at the end, shift it to, what's the process? What have I learned from this? The other suggestion I would make is don't be afraid to do a certain subject or certain painting multiple times. This is something that I see a lot of, and I did it too, right? We finished painting and we're like, oh, I don't like that. All right, what's next? I'm going to the next painting, right? Well, it's like, wait, wait, wait. You can learn so much from doing the same painting multiple times because you're taking out some of the variable. You've already drawn it. You can draw it again with more confidence next time. You've already painted it once. Yes, it didn't work, but focus on something. Oh, I didn't like how this wash worked. Well, focus on improving that part of the painting, but you've already drawn it. You know, you've already done some of the work already. So make some adjustments, but try it again because watercolor, especially, is more about the process than it is about the final product. We have to get comfortable with that process. And the only way to do it is not thinking about that process until we do it. It's by doing the process. And then we don't have to think about it. So that's the way to do it. You can find more out about Brienne M. Brown and her workshops at her website, www.briennembrown.com and on Facebook and Instagram. And we'll link to everything in the show notes including those videos that were mentioned. Thank you so much for being with us today, Brienne. Thanks, Kelly. It was great. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. For show notes, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 46. But before you go, click like and subscribe on your listening app. And if you've got a few more moments to spare, leave a review of the show. This helps other artists find the podcast and it makes a big difference. Speaking of big, big differences, a big thank you to all of you podcast art clubbers on Patreon. You make this show possible. An extra shiny thank you to the High Gloss Art Pack, Andrew Atterbury, Debbie and Brian Miller, Rihanna DeRold, Janet Wheeler, Nancy Bryan, Catherine Ordway, Pam Lyle, and Kirk Keefe. And if you want to learn more or join the podcast art club on Patreon, head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash support. Happy painting!